We are in a new and different season at the bridge. I'll talk more about this in a few moments, but a lot of things are about to change. And even in our Bible study, we're in a different place, a very unique place. We talked about this on Wednesday. The Proverbs of Solomon are more idiosyncratic than they are thematic. Idiosyncratic. Good word. What does that mean? It just means that each one of the individual Proverbs have a tendency to stand alone. Individual verses that stand by themselves. You can have two verses side by side and have absolutely nothing to do with each other. The themes and the ideas of these axioms as we now go through. And we talked about Wednesday. The first nine chapters are introduction to the whole rest of the book which is interesting in and of itself. But you get to chapter 10, it begins the Proverbs of Solomon, and he starts to lay them out. Over the next five chapters, he'll cover 375 unique and different Proverbs that we have been and will continue to be looking at. But there are so many subject changes that come so rapidly from verse to verse to verse that you've almost got to wonder if Solomon was ADD. I'm serious. I've looked at this book and thought, Saul, you are all over the map, dude. How can you, you know, write one down and here's another one. Oh, here's one. Oh, this is a great idea here. Just like he's just spazzing out. And the reality is, it's the exact opposite. What happens with the Proverbs, and, you know, I've heard of people reading it through a chapter a day or reading through all of the Proverbs, you know, in a week or something. And I think when you do that, not that there's not value, but you'll miss something. Because I believe the Proverbs are laid out in such a way that God is saying, slow down. I want you to read one verse and close your book and think about it. I want you to hear one saying of wisdom, close your Bible and pray. Meditate on that. Don't even go on to the next one. Stay with one at a time. We know this to be true. Jesus always brings His Word with profound intentionality. And so now as we enter into the Proverbs, rather than chapters or or multiple chapters of one theme, individual themes with every verse. So what we're going to do for the next several Sundays is we're going to take them that way. On Wednesday night, we're going to continue to roll through as many as we can on a Wednesday simply for teaching purposes and, and then to send you all home to study those and meditate on them. But here on Sundays, we're going to try and take just one verse at a time. Or maybe two, if there are a couple that are paired. Occasionally they will be. But it's a unique way that the Lord has, I believe, of getting His Word in. You know, we've spent now seven and a half years looking at these big chunks of truth, and now they're individual nuggets, and God's saying, I want you to eat one at a time and let it sink in. So with that in mind, we will deal with just one today. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Again, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Father, this is new for me. Uh, Lord, I, I like to just have long chapters to sink into, swim around in, the deep end of the pool, Lord. And uh, suddenly we are confronted with these single thoughts. And this one, Father, this one that has been rattling me all week, and I pray, Father, will will stir us up in a good way, Lord, that we will understand what You're talking about. What are You trying to get across? What are You saying, Lord, not only in Your Word, not only across ages, but Father, to this fellowship today, 
And to each of our hearts individually, what do you want us to know? Help us understand and take these things in. Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It's not the only time we hear this truth in the Bible. How blessed, Psalm 32, verse 1, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Solomon will say in Proverbs 17, 9, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. James 5.19 My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Some of you have a church background, some of you do not. If you have a church background, especially one which like mine, had a tendency to be a little more on the legalistic side of things, then you may have a misunderstanding of what it means to say love covers a multitude of sins. I used to assume Peter and James meant that if we love, you know, if we turn sinners from their ways, that we in turn, we get more of our sins covered. In other words, the more I love, the more I'm covered. But that's bad theology. That is not what the Bible teaches. I am not covered or loved by God because of my love. He first loved me. He pours out His grace. Here's some good theology for you. Christ doesn't conditionally cover. He completely cleanses. Amen. And we've got to get that down. We've talked about this. In fact, I want to restate something, perhaps reteach or repeat something that you've heard in here before. And that's simply that there's an eternity of difference between the covering attitude of the Hebrew Scriptures and the cleansing attitude of the New Testament. Now we take both as the Word of God, but God is unveiling a story for us, explaining something to us, showing us something from the old law to the new law. From the covering of the old sacrificial system to the complete cleansing of the cross. We're under the cleansing of the cross in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So get this down. Atonement is an old law word. Atonement goes to the old law. It's the Hebrew word kippur, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. You familiar with that? That one day a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled blood on the mercy seat for the atoning of all the people's sins. The root word of kippur literally means to cover. To conceal. What was God doing in all those many sacrifices, year after year after year, animal after animal, outpouring of blood after outpouring of blood? What was God doing? Covering. Not cleansing. Not cleansing. Hey, you can cover up a zit. But it's still there. Right? Eventually, at the end of the day, you wash your face and there's that bad boy looking back at you out of the mirror. There's nothing clean about that. Leviticus 23.26, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. This shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall humble your souls, present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement. To make atonement. Covering on your behalf before the Lord your God. 
Now here's the thing about atonement. The blood of every single animal that ever walked the face of the earth, if you took all of it and dumped it on the mercy seat, it would not be enough to cleanse. It could only cover. And so year after year, the Jewish people had to return, had to return and realize we've got to be covered again. We've got to be covered again. And it it gave this mentality of a constant need to come back before God and get the sins washed away, like Catholic confession. I got to go back again because I need more covering. I need atonement. What was God doing? Romans 3.25, Paul says, In the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. He covered them. He said, for now, I'm not going to judge you as your sins deserve. I'm going to cover your sins, but we're going to deal with your sins. They're still there, undercover. But we will have to come back and deal with them. Why did He do that? For the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't bring atonement. Jesus brings, and you know I love this word, propitiation. That's right. Propitiation, the Greek word halosmos, that's the word in the New Testament. You can't find the word atonement in the New Testament, by the way. I challenge you to look for it. If you have a King James Bible, you'll find it in one place and it's a mistranslation. It's actually reconciliation in that one verse. But in the Greek New Testament, you cannot find the word atonement. It's always propitiation, halosmos, which means to completely eradicate, to erase. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 10.14, By one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Christ doesn't conditionally cover, He completely cleanses. When we take communion every week, that's not to get covered again. That's to remember the once and for all cleansing that we receive through Jesus at the cross. And that's for every one of us. Which is a marvelous reality. And with that in mind, listen now again to Peter and James. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If I'm already clean, gang and I love or turn a sinner from error, then the multitude of sins that gets covered are not mine. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm already clean. So if I love you, if I care about you, if I serve you in any way, I'm not getting more of my sin covered because I'm already washed clean. So whose sins am I covering? Yours. Whose sins are you covering when you turn someone from error? Their sins. Whose sins are you covering when you show love in the world? Love covers. Love covers. Love covers. That's what he's talking about. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Solomon here is talking about the highest quality of love in action. It's what love does. It covers. It does not expose. Love does not shame. It does not parade or bandy about the sins of other people. It doesn't gossip or slander. Talk about it. It doesn't bring about or, or highlight people's sins and failures. It doesn't prop itself up 
by dragging other people down. And when that happens in life, in the church, in our relationships, that is not love. Because love covers, love covers a multitude of sins. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, ouch, 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 <laughs> does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Put away your list, gang. <laughs> It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love doesn't uncover. Love covers. And gang, I am, seriously, it's such a simple concept, and yet I am just starting to recognize something in my own life that God doesn't tolerate this kind of uncovering behavior. He's just not down with it. He's not okay with it. In fact, he's highly sensitive to uncovering someone's sin. And this is this can <laughs> radically change our behavior and what we do. I'm getting ahead of myself with this thought. Let me give you four stories. Four examples, because you know me, one verse is never enough. Four examples through Scripture to walk this out and see how God shows us the covering of love. First story is back in Genesis chapter 9. You might want to keep a finger there in Proverbs 10. Go back to Genesis 9. Story number 1. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. This is after the flood. And we're told that Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard. But why did Noah start farming? Well, probably was sick of the sea. (laughs) Tired of oceans. The gal has to do with the dirt and the ground. And so he begins to farm. And we're told in verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. And the word uncovered there implies lewdness. It's not just that he kind of fell out of his robe because he was drunk. It means he got drunk and was in his tent dancing around naked. I don't know. Don't really want to get a picture in my mind, but it was Luke. And you know what's interesting? I heard this perspective the other day. It's possible Noah didn't even know that he was going to get drunk. He didn't intend to. As oftentimes we wander into sin and we don't intend to. What do you mean? He drank wine. Yeah, but up until that point in the earth, there are those who argue that perhaps fermentation never took place until after the flood. When the water canopy over the earth and when, when creation changed, then fermentation took place. And at that point, you know, Noah makes some grape juice and doesn't realize this is really good, you know. So he's drunk and he's in his tent and he's uncovered. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Guys, you're not going to believe what dad just did. And, you know, it wasn't like he could tell everybody in town because they were town. (laughs) Wasn't anybody else there, right? So he goes and he tells his brothers. But Shem and Japheth, verse 23, took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. Who loved dad? Love covers. 
Shem and Japheth showed respect, honor, and love for their father, not looking into his sin, not even engaging in conversation about his sin. They covered his sin. Ham, on the other hand, was all about uncovering it, hamming it up, telling everybody he could. Again, just the family, because that's all there was. Love covers. Verse 24 says, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. There's no other way to ask this but to say, are you a ham? (laughs) Are you one who exposes the sin of others? Is your snout always in someone else's business? Rooting around? Spreading around their manure? It's a piggish thing to do? We have Christian lingo for it. Yeah, some people are going, were there jokes in there? Yeah, there were. It's okay. <laughs> Someone else is going, they were really bad. I get it. I get it. We have Christian lingo for this kind of behavior, gang. We call it concern. Mm. You know, we call it prayer requests. Well. Look, I, I, I need you just to pray with me for, for so-and-so because you're not going to believe what they did. Oh, <laughs> and off we go talking for 45 minutes before we ever get to the prayer. And I think perhaps undermining the value of the prayer. Love covers. Love covers. We have a misunderstanding, I think, of what Christian accountability is. We turn it into a a situation of judgment. It's not judgment. Christian accountability is saying, I love you so much, I will cover your sin and walk with you to help you through it. I'm not going to go tell everybody else what you did. I'm not going to boot you out of the church for it. No, I'm going to love you and care about you because you matter to me even as messed up as you may be in the moment. Love covers. And by the way, if you don't know someone well enough to walk with them through their sin situation, you have no business talking about them anyway. Because love covers. (laughs) Noah wakes up. He knows Ham has shamed him. And he speaks. But what he says is not the ranting and raving of, an, uh, of, an, of a drunken soul. No, he speaks prophecy. Watch this. Verse 25. He said, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan? Who's Canaan? Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What does all this mean? I'll tell you in a moment. Keep your fingers there and go over to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. Head right a few chapters. You'll get there. It's easy to pass. It's just a four-chapter book. Right after Judges. Ruth chapter 3, second story of covering. Verse 1, Ruth 3. You know the story of Ruth? Ruth the Moabite, the outcast. She comes with Naomi. She's married into a Jewish family, but her husband dies. And so she comes back with Naomi into Israel. And they're trying to establish some kind of a home for themselves, and they've got literally nothing. And then Ruth meets a gentleman named Boaz. Chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi and her mother-in-law, or Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, 
whose maids, with whose maids you were. Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down, then you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what to do. Now, girls, I wouldn't suggest this. In our culture, probably not the best thing to do. But in this culture, there's something going on here. Verse 5. Ruth said to to Naomi, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Yeah, that'd be startling. (laughs) And he said, Who are you? And she answered, and it's dark, she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Literally, you are my kinsman redeemer. The word is ga'al in the Hebrew. You're my redeemer. You know, I just love this. Uncovering his feet wasn't a suggestive thing to do. It wasn't seductive. It wasn't immoral. It was a woman's way of saying, I want to come under your protective covering. I want to be under you. Nothing sexual implied here. Ruth does not get under the covers. She wants to be under the covering, which is a completely different mentality. And she has good intentions. In fact, she uses the same word to Boaz that he used with her previously about being covered. When she says, spread your covering over your maid. Boaz used that word with Ruth. Look back in chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord reward your work, Boaz is speaking, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Wings is the word kanaf. Same word that Ruth uses, covering. Under your wings, your kanaf. Literally, it's the border of the hem. The border of the hem, the robe of a, of a Jewish man would be the place of authority. And, and the, the place of power, representative of, of power and strength, would be that hem of the robe. And so she's saying, I want to come under your covering, under your wing, under your protection. I want to be under your kanaf, Boaz, Ruth says. So how does he respond to her? Verse 10 of chapter 3. And then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Love covers. You want to be under my covering, he says? I will cover you. And he does immediately. It's interesting, verse 14 says, She lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. What's he doing? He's covering her. He's already covering her reputation. He's already saying, I will not let anything be spoken negatively, be spoken ill of Ruth. I will cover her. Now keep this beautiful, pure love story in mind. And listen again to Noah's prophecy to his sons back in Genesis 9. Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, these three boys spread out and began the repopulation of earth process. Them and their wives. And we know just from history and and how these things have laid out that they all three went in different directions. Ham fathered the Hamitic people. You mean Hamitic people? Down toward Africa. Ham headed south. Okay? Primarily moved into that region, all except for one son of Ham, that is a son named Canaan, who moved into the southwestern region of Israel today, a region by the sea, you would know it as Gaza. And the Canaanites ended up there a wicked and perverse and vile people. Such that when the children of Israel were coming back into Israel, God said, I want the Canaanites wiped out. Well, that's a little harsh, God. Well, you ought to see, you ought to know what the Canaanites were doing to their infants and to their children. It was an absolutely, rabidly sick and perverse society. So, when Noah says, cursed be Canaan, He's not just pronouncing a curse. He's pronouncing a prophetic truth. Canaan will be cursed. The Canaanite people will be sick and sinful and twisted. And that's a reality that is coming. Hey, Ham, in the same way that you have shamed me, your father, Noah says, Canaan is going to shame you. Canaan, your son, will be a shame to you. Noah's words are not so much a curse as a prophecy. Japheth's sons spread out to the west filling what we know now mostly the region of Europe. That's where Japheth headed. Shem, well, he fathered the Shemitic people or Semitic people. You've heard of anti-Semitism. It comes from the Semitic people, which are primarily Israel. Jews and Arabs are Semitic people. And so Israel is there, stayed there in the region. Shem is representative of Israel. And Noah prophesied that the people of Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. But before this could happen, the Semitic people needed covering. Story number three. Stay with me. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16. Keep going to the right of Proverbs. Ezekiel 16. Verse 1. Remember, we're talking about how love covers. We saw Boaz covering Ruth. We saw Shem and Japheth covering their father. Now watch this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Well, that's where Abram came from. Remember, Abram didn't start out a monotheistic follower of Jehovah. No, Abram started out a pagan. He was a a pluralistic guy. He came from multiple God worship and God led him out of that. Verse 4, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water for cleansing, nor were you rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. What's that talking about? God's saying, you never separated yourself from this people. You were supposed to. We should have cut that cord a long time ago, but you are still connected to the sinful pagan people that you came out of. And so you're not washed and you're not clean and you're wallowing in your blood. 
Verse 5, No I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you, I saw you squirming in your blood. And I said, while you were in your blood, live! (laughs) Yes, I said to you, live while you were in your blood. Live! I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up. And you became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. And then I passed by you and saw you. And behold, you were at the time for love. So watch this. I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. I spread my skirt over you. The word, kanaf. I spread my wings over you. I spread my covering over you. You, Israel, came under the hem of my garment, the Lord says. I have you covered. I've got you covered. Just as Shem and Japheth covered the sin of their father, just as Boaz covered the outcast Moabite Ruth, so God spread His kanaf over Israel, His covering. But don't miss this. This is interesting. Remember back in Genesis 9.27, Noah prophesied the people of Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem, which is under a covering, so to speak. Genesis 9.27, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What is this saying? Listen, Jesus was Semitic. Jesus is of the line of Shem. The tents of Shem literally means the tents of glory. And there's a prophetic foreshadowing here of Jesus Christ who has become our tent, our covering from God. Jesus under whom, in whom, under the tent of Christ, that's where we come under covering. The Word became flesh, John tells us, and dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched His tent there among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, for of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And by the way, this doesn't exclude the house of Shem. It's Canaan who was singled out, or the house, I'm sorry, of Ham. It's Canaan who was singled out, not Ham. And so Ham, Japheth, all come under that same covering. It's the direction by which the truth, the gospel, God's grace spread out from the house of Shem all the way through Jesus, spread out across the world, over Japheth, around the Ham, and covers everybody who will come under the tent of Jesus Christ. Love covers. Love covers. One more story. Turn in your Bibles all the way over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 42, latter part of the verse. Jesus has been called to go heal a daughter who's sick. And He's on the way and the crowds are thronging around and they're massive crowds. And we're told as He went, the crowds were pressing against Him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, the kanaf, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Jesus said, Who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. And Peter's right. There are people, everybody's touching Jesus. Everybody's trying to touch Jesus. And suddenly Jesus says out of the midst of this throng, wait a minute, someone touch me. 
And Peter's like, yeah. Jesus says, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out from me. Which every time I read that, I get chills. Power went out from me. I don't know, was it electric? What did Jesus feel? But Okay, someone just touched me. (laughs) And it's amazing, the woman saw. Verse 47, that she had not escaped notice and she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, which I imagine she hadn't been called for a long time, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus expose the woman here? Didn't He expose what was going on in an embarrassing way? Who touched me? And then she has to come forward and and confess to this. Listen, the only thing Jesus exposed was her faith. How would it be if that's the only thing we were willing to expose about each other? I will not talk about you unless it's about your faith. I will not share anything with anyone about you unless it's your righteousness, your goodness, your commitment to the Lord. That I'll share. Any other sin issue, things that you're struggling with, any blood in your life, I'm not going to talk about that. But I will talk about your faith. You see, love covers. And this covering of love, you can find so many other stories throughout Scripture. We continue to see how God just wants to cover sin, to cover up the sin of people. This is what Jesus does when you come to Him. He covers your sin. And so much more. He cleanses your sin. And we need cleansing, don't we? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 tells one of the most blatant truths in Scripture, there is no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Open and laid bare. You know what that means? The word open means filleted like, like a deer that you've shot hunting and you've now flayed it wide open and you're draining it of its blood. It is wide open for you to see. Mm. Laid bare means naked. And he says that's the way it is between us and God. He sees it all. He sees that there is nothing that we can hide. We're like Noah, uncovered in our sin. We're like Ruth, uncovered outcasts from the people of God. Like the hemorrhaging woman, uncovered in our hopelessness. Like Israel, you and I, we were squirming in the blood of our birth, uncovered. And Jesus comes along and says, how'd you like to be born again? Because you see, if you're born again, there's more than just covering that takes place. I'll wash that blood off of you. I'll cleanse you with my blood. I'll wash you in a way that, like Mitch was talking about at communion, I will lift the sin off of you in a way that it cannot come back. Jesus says that He wants us to be born of blood, no, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, John 1.13. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3 that we are to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the single greatest demonstration of the cover of love was the cross of Calvary where Jesus died and He provides that sin cleansing. Not just sin covering, sin cleansing completely. Now, here's where all this goes. We already read this verse, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now listen. John goes on. 
And he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the covering of love. It's not that I need more covering. If you are in Jesus Christ today, you know this. You're saved. You're washed. You're clean. And you're covered. I don't need more. But I do need to cover more than I tend to in my life. I said earlier, this really rattled me this week because I began to recognize how little I cover the sins of others. I'm not talking about concealing. You know, I'm not I'm not talking about, you know, we'll just we'll turn a blind eye to sin. We'll ignore sin. In this church, sin up, man, because we're not going to do anything about it. We'll just look the other way. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about if there is sin that comes to light, if there's sin in anyone's lives here, we will cover each other and walk each other through it to forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and the washing of Jesus. But we will not fear the sins of others. And far more, we will not talk about it. We're not going to share the sins of others. I think that's what Peter and James meant. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers. Love covers a multitude of sins. He who turns a sinner away from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's what Solomon meant. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all transgressions. Cheryl and I saw a movie this last weekend. Uh, Friday night, we're up in Bellingham. We found this, this cool little indie kind of a theater. They play foreign films and independent movies and stuff. The Pickford Cinema up in Bellingham. And uh, we had seen, we were up there a couple months ago and saw a movie, and um, we saw an advertisement for this movie coming up called Of Gods and Men. Anyone seen that? Of Gods and Men? It's a French film. <laughs> Subtitled. You know, I took four years of French, had no idea what they were talking about. But I could read. So we had the subtitles going on. It's the story, true story, of back in 1996, a group of monks, French monks, were living in Algeria. At a time where, uh, well, as in much of the world today, Islam was, was becoming radicalized and, and dangerous and, and pretty bloody. And these monks were warned again and again by the government of Algeria, get out, go back to France. And they refused to go. The whole story really is their faith struggle of how they get from one place to the beginning where they have opportunity to leave, they're being told to leave because violence is being propagated against all non-Muslims. And these eight guys, and a ninth joins them, they determined to stay. And the reason they chose to stay was not so that they could remain cloistered in their monastery, but because they had a long-standing, decades-old relationship with the little village that was right below them. They gave medicine to sick people. They fed those who were hungry. They were involved in their lives. Their relationship was very symbiotic. And they loved these people. And as they sat around the table discussing this issue and whether we should stay or we should go, each one of them began to say, how can we leave these people? We love them too much. Knowing that the decision to stay would cost them their lives. And one night in 1996, six of the eight were kidnapped out of the monastery and murdered. And they knew they were going to be. Don't think the decision to love in the world today doesn't have serious consequence. It does. I highly recommend that movie. There are a few politically correct things. You can work through those. 
But if you have a chance, go see this. It's profound. Absolutely profound. I had already had this teaching uh, in the book and, and set aside and ready for this morning. And we went to see that. And I just sat back and even more, the message I kept hearing from the Lord this week and through that movie and through my experience is this. Are you willing to love like that? Are you willing to love like that? You know, it's, it's easy for us as Christians to say, I'm going to love, I'm going to go get involved with the homeless ministry, and I'm going to go love people once a month who I don't know. Okay. And, you know, no skin off the nose of the homeless ministry. You should. It's a great ministry, a great opportunity to serve and love people. But that's not the kind of love that I believe the Lord's talking about here. Let's talk about husbands. When you're in a rift with your wife, will you love her? Parents, if you're at crossways with your kids, you're going to love them? Family members, if there's someone in your family who you just despise because they have been such a jerk to you, will you, the Lord says, not Rick, the Lord, will you love them? Will you make choices to love people every day? Not out there in mission work, in your world, in your life. I told you as we began, I believe the Lord has us in a new season, that He's about to do some new things, different things. Not just because we're in Proverbs. But I believe here at the bridge, I am convinced, gang, that we are on the verge of some things. That we are being called to a harvest. When this church was planted seven and a half years ago, with no rhyme or reason to it, I had a sense then and still do today, God is going to do something here. Bigger. That I believe truly that we are on the verge of seeing harvest. Real revival. And when I say revival, please understand, I don't mean excitement and you know hours of, of worship and people falling on their faces. I mean sinners saved. Lost people coming to Jesus. And I believe we are on the verge of that. But here's the thing. I don't think God's going to bring it until... We are a people for whom love covers all transgressions. Until this is a body, and I'm not saying that we're not loving. Please don't get me wrong. Oh, Pastor Rick really hammered us today. He said we're all just hateful people, spiteful and... What a jerk he is. You know what he did last week I heard about? (laughs) Hey, I am part of... I love this fellowship. And I am part of what I hear going on is love. And it's good. But gang, it's, it's... Harvest is going to come, but it's not going to come through the teaching of the Word of God. That's one component. It's not going to come by everyone in the fellowship praying. That's another component. But the most important critical thing that's got to come, God needs to see that this is a place where love covers. That when the sinner walks in the door, they're not going to be treated shamefully, they're going to be covered immediately. I was privileged to be part of a conversation that was an exact example of what I'm trying to say. And Brian, one of our shepherds, was standing there and I was standing there and we were talking to this gentleman, homeless gentleman. Lives out of the back of his car and he was kind of sharing a little bit of his life and, and talking about how you know, people give me money and he said, you know, some buy food and booze and you could smell it, you know. And he said that, and my, I'm just going to be honest, my gut reaction as a long-time church guy was, ooh, my booze, well, we need to get you into this fellowship so we can clean you up and fix you because we got some, you know, some sin to deal with here. We're going to work on that. You know what Brian said? Brian looked at him and he goes, isn't it great that God just meets us right where we are? 
right. Mm. And I went, wow. I mean, that, and that's what, and the, man, and the man just lit up. And he loves Jesus, by the way. And he's a believer. And so I'm caught in this, wait a minute. Can a drunk love Jesus? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're saying that someone who has sin problems in their life can be in love with the Lord? <laughs> and we are so quick to judge and jump on that. And God's saying, no, listen, open the door and call the sinners in. And it's going to get messy. And people are going to say and do things that will offend you're Christianese. <laughs> but love covers, right? Love covers. The harvest will come to this fellowship when this fellowship is a people who are healing, who are a sanctuary, who offer mercy and grace, and who say more than anything else, I don't care where you've come from, I don't care how ugly your life is right now, love covers. And we will walk with you. Because that's what love does. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. You know, Lord, I I say let's pray for this, not just because we pray at the end of every teaching, but because there is no way on earth that we can generate this kind of love. There is no way in the natural self that I can love the way that You have called me to love. And so we are praying a supernatural prayer and saying, Father, make us a loving people after the pattern of Jesus. Give us, Lord, the ability to reach out our hands to those whose sin is ugly. And Father, I just pray that it would start in our closest relationships. We don't have to look far. May we love each other like this in our homes and at work. And in our neighborhoods, Father. And among those people right now who we know, first, may we supernaturally love in this church. I pray for Your supernatural and divine power to be on this fellowship that we can love the way You've called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.